0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to be talking this afternoon about fighting the good fight. And I want to read Paul's words to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, we'll begin with verse 18. Paul writes, This charge... I entrust to you Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme well there's always been both an abundance of timid preachers who are unwilling to wage spiritual warfare against false teaching and a rarity of bold preachers who are willing to stand and denounce false teaching while declaring the truth therefore the need to call upon Timid pastors to be bold did not end with Paul's encouragement of young Pastor Timothy. Hugh Latimer was a wonderful example of a bold preacher who proclaimed God's Word in the 1500s. He eventually was burned at the stake for his unwillingness to tone down his preaching. He lamented the preachers of his day who would not preach the Word of God with courage. In his day, he believed preachers had become soft, in the 1500s, mind you, and more interested in worldly comforts than preaching an unadulterated gospel. So let me tell you what he declared. Listen to these words. He said, Since lording and loitering hath come up, preaching hath come down. Preachers today, he said, they hawk, they hunt, they card, and they dice. He said of his fellow preachers, they're committed to the pampering of their paunches, munching in their mangers, and moiling in their happy mansions. Now I'm from East Tennessee, and I didn't understand a word of that except to know that he was not doling out compliments. And this is what he's saying about preachers in that day. On one occasion, he was invited to preach before King Henry VIII. And he predictably offended the king with his sermon, his bold message. So Henry commanded Latimer to preach again the following Sunday and to make an apology. Latimer addressed himself, actually, as he stood before the king. He addressed himself as he began to preach that next Sunday. And here is what he said. He said, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Thou best not speak a word that may displease, but then consider well, Hugh, dost thou know who hath sent you to preach? Thou hast been sent by the great and mighty God, who is present everywhere and is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, Decide for whom thou wilt speak. And then Hugh Latimer preached the exact same sermon he had preached the Sunday before (laughs) with even more energy. Praise God for preachers who are committed to fight the good fight. The Apostle Paul didn't want Timothy to go unprepared into battle. He knew the invisible war between God and Satan is a struggle to the death. So he commanded him to prepare for spiritual combat. These are Timothy's marching orders. As Paul says, this charge I entrust to you. In essence, Paul is ordering Timothy to report for duty. This letter begins with Paul urging, you'll see in verse 3, urging Timothy to oppose false doctrines. And then Paul, after verse 3, had digressed in verses 4 down to 17 to praise God for his salvation and to clarify the true doctrine of God and the true doctrine of the gospel. And now he returns to the matter at hand when he refers to his charge in verse 18. He means the charge that he had already given in verse 3 for Timothy to boldly oppose false teaching. So in light of that, he gives Timothy a charge to fight well. Timothy's military orders that we read a moment ago are in accordance with the prophecies previously made about him, Paul said. Most likely Paul was referring to what happened when Timothy was set apart for the work of the ministry, an event that's mentioned, by the way, more than one time in Scripture. And from the various scriptural references, we know at some point there was an event in which three things happened to Timothy. One, he was given a spiritual gift, very likely of preaching or exhortation that Paul later reminds Timothy about in 2 Timothy. Secondly, there was a prophecy of some kind that was made over him, of which were given no details of the content of that. And thirdly, the elders laid hands upon him. So the picture we get is of a great spiritual event in Timothy's life in which he was set apart for gospel ministry as various people spoke of his fitness and they spoke of the powerful voice for the gospel that he would become. Remember these prophecies, Timothy. Live them out, be strong, carry out the command, and fight the good fight. You'll discover that on many occasions the Apostle Paul will say to Timothy, be strong, be courageous. It's likely that Timothy faced opposition that would tempt a man to be weak and to be cowardly. And here Paul reminds Timothy of when the church set him apart, when they recognized the gifts that God had given him, and he was set apart to do the work of boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see both here and more extensively later in this book in chapter 3 the type of men that churches need to set apart for the cause of the gospel. Men who are willing to fight the good fight. There are certainly bad fights. There are those. Paul tells Timothy to stay away from issues that promote controversy. That an elder must not be quarrelsome. But he still tells him to fight the good fight. Some fights are not worth fighting. Some wars wars are not worth waging. I would venture to say that most things people fight over even in churches aren't worth fighting for and are more sinfully divisive than they are unifying. I found that the problem actually usually, it isn't that the churches are unwilling to fight. I found that it's not that Christians are not unwilling to fight. It's that they won't walk away from the bad fights and they won't engage in the good ones. There is a good fight which is what Paul calls the good warfare it's the battle for truth that the doctrines of the doctrines of the Christian faith That includes doctrines like the reality of the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the necessity of atonement for sin, the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross, the efficacy of faith alone for justification, and the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. But dare we not forget, the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life is a battle worth fighting for. We cannot afford to ever take sound doctrine for granted I believe there's a lot of that that's been taking place even in our own convention in the last decade. The people of God have never been able to simply rest in the faith. They have had to contend for the faith. All through the Old Testament, God's prophets had to oppose, as Ezekiel 13.9 says, the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. The bulk of Jesus' teaching contradicts the false theology of the Pharisees. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes it very clear what is wrong before He makes it clear what is right. He says, you have heard them twist the Scriptures this way. Let me tell you what the Word of God really means. Every New Testament epistle is concerned with sound doctrine. Even the tiny epistle of Jude urges the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then the subsequent history of the church is is largely a story of doctrinal confrontation. Various councils convened to defend truths such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the sovereignty of God's grace against the man-centered doctrines of Pelagius. In the Middle Ages, the way of salvation came under attack. Scripture had to be defended as the sole standard for faith and practice. Christ had to be defended as the sole mediator between God and man. Faith had to be defended as the only instrument of justification. Grace had to be defended as the sole power of God for salvation. The Scriptures had to be, had to be defended as the sole means, the sufficient means of everything that we need for life and practice, all that we need. This has always been the case in history. The good fight continued through the 20th century. There was the fight between evangelicalism and liberalism. There was the fight for biblical inerrancy during the 70s and the 80s that later took place in the conservative resurgence in our own denomination. And here we are now and people act like if there is any fighting for sound doctrine that somehow we are abandoning what God has called us to. People act like unity at all costs, big tents that we hear about that allow anybody to come in and make those who are concerned about the expansion of those things to be somewhat contentious, if not a lot so. And to say that the big tent of anybody coming in is the way to stay focused on mission. But as the church has sought to carry out the work of the Great Commission... It has constantly been keenly aware of the need to fight for purity of doctrine. Yet here we are tolerating doctrines that have even been previously rejected by prior generations. Liberation theologians being taught in a positive light in our seminaries, standpoint hermeneutics taught as a means to interpret the Bible all under the leadership of men that we trusted to guard the gates who have fallen asleep munching in their mangers. Lack of resolve to walk away from viewing worldly ideologies as analytical tools. The reversal of roles in the church where women are allowed to preach and where that individuals who point out that one of the presidential candidates preached sermons with his wife, that we're the problem. While they are the ones who have been propagating these things that we fought this battle for long ago. We're told that this isn't a main doctrine, that we need to focus on primary doctrines, first-tier doctrines. But yet when Paul tells Timothy to contend for the faith in the same book, he makes it very clear that the role of women is not to be in a position of authority or teaching over men. It is not difficult to understand. And those who tell you that it is, they're trying to sell you something or they're trying to advance something. I am all for a big tent, but not when it starts to turn into a theological circus. As one seasoned pastor said, there are certain preachers who will draw a horse and say this is a horse. But he won't draw a cow next to the horse and say the cow is not a horse. We need, it's not enough to to be sound in your doctrine. A pastor must be willing to say this is what truth is and this is not what truth is. This is wrong. A pastor must not only teach the truth, but must also inoculate these people against error by helping them understand the difference between the two. We cannot effectively teach what the gospel is if we are not as passionate about teaching what it is not. One of the reasons I'm passionate about these things is because I grew up under liberal preaching. I grew up in East Tennessee, and I grew up under one particular pastor where the Bible was ignored. Had My pastor was trained in a liberal Southern Baptist seminary by those who didn't believe in errancy. And people say, but aren't we glad that all of our professors and our individuals who are in our leadership believe in inerrancy now? First of all, folks, that, that, we didn't get overnight. They didn't get overnight to where they were. There is drifts that take place, as you've heard it said. And we are in a drift. And now we have some who claim to believe in inerrancy, but don't see see the Word of God as sufficient. As if God would give the church something. That God would breathe out of His mouth, as as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that God would breathe out something that wasn't sufficient that we need worldly ideologies. How ridiculous to believe that a worldly godless ideology that didn't even exist until a few decades ago can assist the church in carrying out the mission that God gave it from the eternal God who spoke everything into His existence didn't have enough sense where to believe to give us something sufficient to do the work that He's called us to do. 1 Timothy 3.16, when He tells us about the Word of God, He says, it equips... The man of God for every good work. Not some good works, not most good works, every good work. And if it's not sufficient, we're in trouble. Truth is, there has never been a time when God's people were not in danger of falling into error. The history of the church confirms the necessity of Paul's charge to Timothy. Until Christ returns, the people of God will be engaged in perpetual war against unsound doctrine. Of course, we work for peace as much as it depends upon us. We should not look for fights. However, anyone who believes doctrinal unity can be achieved without a struggle doesn't understand the history of the church nor the teaching of Scripture. It's not enough to say things like, well, why don't we just, we all believe in Jesus, uh, why don't we just focus on the mission of taking the gospel to a lost world? As soon as we say that, we must explain who Jesus is. What he has done, what difference it makes, and how he is received. The means of accomplishing that mission. There's an inevitable and perpetual warfare between truth and error. The moment you say, why can't we be about the gospel? You put yourself in a position of defining what the gospel, having to define what the gospel is. And how do we do that apart from the inerrant sufficient word? But here's an important question. How do we fight well? How do we fight the good fight? Paul tells Timothy, if you notice in the text there, holding faith, holding faith and a good conscience. This short phrase is actually deceptively comprehensive because as one author says, it contains what is objectively and subjectively necessary to fight the good fight. On the one hand, we must hold to the objective deposit of the faith. We have been entrusted with the truth of God's Word and we must hold it out as the only hope for mankind and just as Paul tells Timothy of his purpose in chapter 3 and verse 15 saying that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, there is a lot at stake in our being willing to stand for all of God's truth. We've got to have a solid grasp on the objective content of our faith if we are to fight well. The sad truth for far too many Christians is the reason they don't have the courage of their conviction is because they don't have any convictions. They have no solid knowledge of the Bible much past John 3.16. They simply don't know how much, uh, very much about God and His Word. They may have a relationship with Him, but it's stunted by their ignorance of Him. Ignorance of Him. Too many people see any conviction for truth and stand against error as being unloving, uncharitable. In the name of love, they are more than willing to accept any kind of theology that allows for anything. Some people are. So the reason that many don't have the courage of our convictions is because they don't have convictions to start with. We need pastors who will stand in the pulpit and passionately passionately declare the truth and boldly expose false teaching. And the current battles our churches are facing in our culture require its pulpits to be filled with men who do not wear lace on their skinny jeans. At the same time, at the same time, if we're to fight well, we must not only hold on to the faith, we must hold on to a, Paul says, good conscience. For Paul, a good conscience is at the very root of fighting the good fight. The way Paul couples these two together he was saying a good conscience is key to maintaining a sound faith. This led John Calvin to say this, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Since a good conscience comes from a good life, Timothy must practice what he preaches. Christian life is as important as Christian faith. You will not stand for God's truth if it's only in your head and not in your heart that's expressed through your life. Faith and a good conscience can't be separated. In fact, Paul joins these terms together three times in 1 Timothy alone. False doctrine leads to moral failure. Because wrong views about God's Word lead inevitably to wrong behavior. But the reverse is also true. Immoral living will lead to unsound doctrine. People often try to justify their sins, and when they do, their bad behavior will lead them to false doctrine. The Scottish divine John Willison gave this counsel to ministers, and I'll quote it to you. He says, If we would advance the church's credit and avert her reproach, Let us all be careful to preach to our people by our lives as well as by our lips, to conform our doctrine in the pulpit by our conversation out of it. Let us mind that a loose way of living will soon demolish all all that is built by the most lively way of preaching. For our people have eyes to see how we walk as well as ears to hear what we say. In addition, I would say that if I'm preaching the bold, unvarnished truth of God's Word, if I'm allowing it to rule my own life, repenting myself of my own sin, allowing the Word to convict me, allowing the Word to show me where I need to be reproved, to be rebuked, to be corrected, all of the things that God's Word training me, all of those things that God's Word does and is, When I do that, I have a greater ability to stand courageously for the truth. I I can stand up to substantial pressure if my conscience is clear. But without a clear conscience, there's no power to endure or resist We know that we need to be changed by the Word to be convinced that what the Word says is true. I'm more convinced of what the Word says when I allow it to change my own life. I'm more convinced that the Bible is sufficient when I allow it to sufficiently rule me. Now if we look at the text a little further, what happens when Christians let go of their faith or their practice? Paul ends his charge by getting specific. And he gives two tragic examples of men who had shipwrecked their faith. He calls them out by name. So when people say we should never name names, that's not true. I'm an A.S. and Alexander. Pretty significant here as we look at them, he says these two men rejected faith and a good conscience and have made shipwreck of the faith. And for this reason, you'll notice he says he handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to be blasphemed. Now I want to be very clear, I'm not comparing this of handing anybody over to Satan to anything that I've talked about to you earlier in this or anything that I've mentioned I don't think at all that we're at that point. But I think we must be careful because when we begin to drift, we may very well get to that point. And Paul compares the result to a shipwreck. Hymenaeus and Alexander had foundered on the sandbank of false doctrine. Their testimony had turned into the Titanic. And while we don't know all the details, we know from 2 Timothy... That Hymenaeus went overboard on his eschatology because Paul addresses it there. But whatever the specific false doctrine they held, it was blasphemous. And Paul and the church took serious action against them. He says they were handed over to Satan. That phrase directly refers, I'm sure you know, to church Discipline. It's the exact phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, to deal with sin taking place among the Corinthian congregation. Part of fighting the good fight of faith, when there are those who are unwilling to turn from their false doctrine, serious false doctrinal error, those central core issues that affect the gospel itself, the church is to practice church discipline, and to put them out of the church it puts them outside of the care of God's church it serves as a warning about how dangerous it is to be caught outside the church of Jesus Christ this is why in first Corinthians and here in first Timothy Paul calls it a turning over to Satan away from God's care and protection under the power of Satan Now, this is part of the church's work this is part of us establishing even peace in the church because you cannot have peace without purity. James says that wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure and then peaceable. So we often get it backwards. We're crying for peace when we're ignoring the very conversations we need to be having in order to bring about biblical peace. We need doctrinal fidelity. We need doctrinal purity. And a church that takes it wor- its work seriously will do this when the occasion requires. Hymenaeus I and Alexander were denied Christian fellowship. For them to return to fellowship with Christ and His church, they would need to confess their sin and repent. And notice since Paul desires for them, you notice in the text, he, noted, he desires for them to learn not to blaspheme. I'm encouraged by that because Paul has a hope for these two men. The word used translated learn is a positive word meaning to instruct. It's it's not a punitive term. So it seems that Paul hopes that Hymenaeus and Alexander may yet make it back to port. As one preacher said, quote, For some it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantages on board ship. Discipline is not intended simply to punish sin, but also to have the hope for the restoration of the sinner. If we really care about people, we'll correct them when they're out of line with God's Word. You want real love? Speak to someone truth when their ship is about to be up on the sandbar of bad doctrine or bad living. So the message is clear. We're called to fight the good fight. The way we do this is to hang on to the faith that's been handed down to us in God's eternal inerrant word. To hang on to a good conscience that lives what we preach, contends for the truth in a way that is not contentious, Otherwise, we will shipwreck the lives of many. We may shipwreck the lives of ourselves, but many others as well, if we fail to be what Paul says in 1 Timothy, the pillar and buttress of the truth that we've been called to be. We must fight the good fight as we contend for the faith. Holding the faith firmly and standing strongly allowing that same faith to govern our lives so that we live it there's nothing more powerful than someone who believes all that God has said and allows God's word to rule them and live in that way nothing more powerful than that with God's help we must not we with God's help we must not be persuaded by government edicts or supreme court rulings or even convention resolutions or any other means that might attempt to dissuade us from carrying out our God-given marching orders we need more Hugh Latimer's who stood before King Henry VIII, like he did we need men like him pastors who will understand that they'll answer to God for the proclamation of His Word, and they could care less what anyone else says except for God alone. And I pray we'll never cower from the duty to which we've been called. At all times, it calls upon us to boldly preach the truth without compromise, and to live in a way that is personally committed to the truth we preach. Ministry is not easy. But warfare never is. And that's what we are in. And those who don't like that imagery, they could have a word with Paul because he uses it multiple times. We may very well face days in the future like those who in the past were burned at the stake for believing what they believed and then being bold enough to preach what they preached. May we be like Paul who fought until the end of his life As he wrote his second and final letter to Timothy, he was a veteran of many campaigns that he had fought for the truth. And listen to his dying words in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he says, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Oh, that these could be the words that would be repeated at the end of a ministry or at the end of a life, for, of the life of any Christian I have fought the good fight as we enter into Christ's eternal rest. Consider the words of William Walsham Howe's wonderful hymn that was written for soldiers who have retired from the gospel campaign. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon, to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. Until then, fight the good fight. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you boldly and clearly used Paul to speak this word boldly and clearly to us, Lord. We are thankful that we have a word that is sufficient. We're thankful that when we go into our meetings in these coming days that we have a guide to guide us. We have a standard by which to think through these things. The world wants to get us to conform. The world wants us to to take the word of God and to... Uh, lay it aside, worldly ideologies, as if somehow, in some way, those things could help us think better and more clearly. When I hear someone say that what we need is a higher standard than the Word of God, I know that's someone who has very little understanding of the Word of God. And I pray that we will fight the good fight. And that means we will do it in a way where we contend for truth as is in your Word We will do it with a good conscience, where we will allow it to examine our own hearts, to convict us, to reprove us, to rebuke us, to train us, so that we may be equipped for every good work. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.